Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. We treat AI as though it is not at all touched by human flaw and therefore untouched by things like bias, except that the people who program and create and code artificial intelligence are human beings. That's Sherilyn Eiffel. She's the president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. I speak with her about the rise of artificial intelligence and policing and how both companies and cops can address issues of racial bias. Plus, we talk about the attacks on voting rights and restoring the vote to people leaving prison. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Betterment. Following the twists and turns of politics can be tricky. Maybe that's why you listen to me. Following the twists and turns of the market, that's why people use Betterment. Betterment is the largest online financial advisor. Its mission is to help you make the most of your money. With a mix of simple tools and personalized advice, Betterment helps people build wealth, plan for retirement, and hit their financial goals. You pay one low transparent management fee, no matter who you are or how much money you invest. Look, I know how fast life can change. One day, you're a U.S. attorney. The next day, you're a podcast host. So prepare for the unexpected. A solid financial plan and some sound advice can make a world of difference. Investing involves risk. Betterment can be your guide. And now, stay tuned with Preet listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit betterment.com slash Preet. That's betterment.com slash Preet. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. Uh, my name's Damien. I'm ringing from... Ormskirk in uh, the UK. Really love the podcast and thanks for doing it and it's been really informative. Quick question. In light of the recent Michael Cohen payments to Essential LLC, was John Oliver right when he essentially called it stupid Watergate? And secondly, a bit more importantly, if the House turns Democrat in the upcoming elections, could you just explain to a non-American what that would mean to the any investigations by the various committees into Trump and his goings-on? Okay, thanks very much. Bye. 
Thanks, Damien from the UK. Those are those are both good questions. First, uh, I didn't actually see that John Oliver sketch, but I can see what he means by stupid Watergate. I think it remains to be seen how stupid it is. Just because the people involved may or may not be stupid doesn't mean that the whole scheme is something that can be just written off as something stupid. Now, with respect to that one account, Essential Consultants LLC, the evidence now shows, first put forward by Stormy Daniels' lawyer, but now appears to be confirmed by other people, and also by the reaction of the companies who were paying Michael Cohen money, he was putting a bunch of fees into that account, including something like $100,000 a month from Novartis and a significant amount of money from AT&T, among other companies, by the way. Both Novartis and AT&T have apologized, said it was a bad idea. The general counsel of Novartis, which is a huge company, has stepped down over the mistake in making this silly and perhaps stupid contract with Michael Cohen that he couldn't deliver on. I can't see anything right off the top of my head that indicates the fact that these companies were paying Michael Cohen in exchange for you know, getting general advice or contact with the president is unlawful. I suppose, depending on what the facts are, uh, he might have had to register as a lobbyist. That's not immediately clear to me. And it's not immediately clear to me that there was any quid pro quo. It could easily also be true that Michael Cohen is a hustler. In fact, I find that very easy to believe. And a grifter and, you know, shopped himself around to company after company after company, including reports are that he tried with Ford and Ford said no. And companies desperate to have some connection to the White House, to have some influence, tried to buy that influence. Stupid on all sides, probably, especially the ones who gave up a lot of money and got nothing in exchange for it. But I don't, I don't know that it's criminal there. Now, the second question you ask is, is an interesting one, and I don't know how many people have been thinking about it. I think what people have been focusing on is what happens with respect to the question of impeachment if the House turns to the Democrats. That's a question to leave to another day. But the other thing that's going to happen, whether the House or the Senate or both change parties, is a series of investigations by a lot of different committees on things and focused on things that no one has even thought about yet. I thought about it a little bit because in between my stints at the Southern District of New York, I worked on the Senate committee, the Judiciary Committee, and part of what I did was conduct investigations. The ones we did were bipartisan into various abuses by the Bush administration, including at the Justice Department. But there were lots of investigations specifically, and I think most impactfully within the House of Representatives by the Judiciary Committee, the Committee on Governmental Oversight, the Intelligence Committee. And given what we have seen in the reporting so far, and I say this just based on, you know, not partisanship, but what you're seeing with what seem to be clear abuses by people like Tom Price, who has already left the government, by Scott Pruitt, who is under fire, and I think testifying even as we're recording this today, over abuse of his office and perks and travel and all sorts of other things, things that are happening at HUD by Ben Carson, that there seems to be uh, you know, a very deep culture in a lot of these agencies of spending taxpayer money when they shouldn't, of taking perks when they shouldn't, and in treating themselves in ways that taxpayers, I think, would never abide. My guess is that we've only scratched the surface because the way these things are coming to light are from intrepid reporters and whistleblowers. When you actually get a congressional committee, or for that matter, a prosecutor, to issue subpoenas and call hearings, and you know the chairmanships will all switch if the House changes or the Senate changes. But the result of that, based on my experience when the Senate flipped some years ago, is that there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of investigations, and a lot of it is going to be uncovering mundane waste and abusive office 
not partisan stuff, and not even necessarily relating in any way to the Russia investigation. And if that happens, you'll see, I predict, you know, a drumbeat of bad headlines, bad stories, bad revelations, because based on sort of the ethical standards being set by the president and by others, whether it's with respect to security clearances or financial disclosures or use of taxpayer money, the standard is not a high one. And as they always say, the fish rots from the head. Uh, whether you're talking about a presidency or you're talking about an agency, and a lot of agency heads have been under fire, I think you're going to see a lot of bad stuff coming out. And in some ways, that should be what the current administration worries about more, potentially, than impeachment. Look, and whatever you think about the Trump administration, you can't tell me that there is not enough evidence based on reporting of all sorts of things going on at these agencies, that there's not a lot of fertile ground to do real investigations into fraud. And the other thing, and again, I don't mean this in a partisan way because the pendulum swings sometimes from Republican to Democrat and sometimes from Democrat to Republican. And, you know, you reap what you sow. And a lot of what we're seeing in terms of overreach by Republican chairmen, not all of them, but some of them, like Devin Nunes, I think, who is trying to take a bat to opponents of Donald Trump, you know, what goes around comes around. And I also predict that you're going to have in a charged, polarized atmosphere when people have been clubbed over the head by chairmen who have not let people look at all the things they want to look at, who have not issued the subpoenas that a bipartisan majority would have supported, that when some chairmen who are Democrats get the gavel, they're going to engage in that kind of payback as well. I'm not saying that's great, but that's human nature, and we'll see what happens. Hi, Parit. My name is Diamond. I am from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'm actually a Bales bondsman. That's why I'm calling. I'm wondering about your stance on bail reform. Google has recently announced they will no longer allow bondsmen to advertise on Google AdWords. And so I just wanted to know where you stood on bail reform, pretrial release, and the future of the bail bond industry. Thanks, Preet. Love your show. Diamond, thanks for your question. You may not love my answer, given what you do for a living. I think the federal system does it right, that pretrial detention is only there for people who fall into one of two categories. Either you're a risk of flight or you're a danger to the community. And it is actually not lawful to detain someone who's presumed to be innocent before trial based on their inability to pay. And so in the federal system, if a judge thinks that a certain amount of security needs to be put up to ensure that the defendant appears for trial and for proceedings, that has to be set in a way that it's potentially makeable. So you don't take somebody who's impoverished and say they have to put up $10 million. What you do sometimes do in the federal system is you get you know financially responsible persons who are connected to that defendant pre-trial who offer to put up property or money and understand that they have moral suasion over the defendant. So you get some comfort that the person will appear. But the only time a judge is empowered legally to keep someone detained and in custody until trial is if they're a clear danger to the community or a serious risk of flight. And in many state systems, including in New York, it's not done that way. And through an interplay of you know, judges setting very, very high bail and the bail bonds industry, I understand, which I'm not an expert on, admittedly, you have a dynamic in which a lot of people who may ultimately not get much time in jail at all end up being incarcerated pre-trial longer than they would ultimately be sentenced for. And I think that's wrong. And I think that's unjust. So I, I think that states need to take a look at how they go about handling bail. I think some states have, have begun to discuss it, including in New York. 
And, you know, I don't really have a view on whether or not the Google approach does a lot. I get where they're coming from and they maybe want to be on the right side of history. But I think the way the country is moving and the way it should move is towards the federal system in all the states. Hi, my name is Bronte and I'm calling from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm calling on behalf of my friend Lily, who's graduating this May from Tulane. Lily's question is, do you think we should be concerned over the growing influence of economics in the study of law? Thanks so much. We both love your show. Bye-bye. Thanks for your question, Bronte. But, you know, this has been an issue in the study of law, I guess, for a long time. You know, I went to law school a long time ago, and there was the, the School of Law and Economics, which a lot of people associate with the University of Chicago Law School. I have no problem with the rise of any kind of academic school of thought in the study of law. I think that's fine. I think there should be lots of opposing viewpoints. I think there should be conservative viewpoints, uh, which are often underrepresented. It might surprise you to hear me say in law schools and in colleges around the country. I think there should be radical viewpoints, both on the conservative and the liberal side and outside of the liberal and conservative side. So people can test their own beliefs and make sure that they're thinking about things the right way. I think people should learn about socialism so they can decide for themselves why they like capitalism better. And I think there are a lot of intellectual heavyweights who think about the role that economics and cost-benefit analysis can play in the study of law. I might have a different view of how courts should decide matters and whether or not you know, a law and economics perspective always makes sense. You know, once upon a time when I was getting my legal education, there was a very controversial idea put forth by Richard Posner, who's a very distinguished jurist, on whether or not there should be a free market for babies. And it was very provocative and made a lot of people upset. And I don't necessarily think that's a great idea, but I think that there should be a free marketplace for ideas and that ideas that some people might not like may work in some circumstances and may not work in other circumstances, but there should be a good full debate about it. More importantly, congratulations on graduating. It's a big accomplishment. In the last week, I've given two commencement addresses, first at Syracuse Law School and then at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I can't tell you how good it was to be among people who, on the one hand, are incredibly happy because they've accomplished a lot and gotten a JD, which is no easy feat and a very powerful tool and instrument for doing good things. On the other hand, not so happy because now they have to spend 10 weeks studying for the bar exam, so I commiserate also. The most important advice I can give to people is make sure that you figure out ways to use your law degree to do good. And also, along the way, not be a jerk. So apart from questions about our democracy and the Mueller investigation and what's going to happen to the future of the world, the most pressing question that is on the lips of people around the world in the last 24 hours is the question of Yanni or Laurel. Now, I'll admit that I was offline for about five hours yesterday in the middle of the afternoon, meeting in Washington, D.C. with my co-chair of the Democracy Task Force through the Brennan Center, Governor Christy Todd Whitman, and it was a great meeting, and we were talking about, among other things, the future of our institutions and democratic strength and coming up with proposals that we'll be putting forward in the coming weeks and months. So I'm very excited about that. But I leave the meeting to head for the train station and I look on Twitter and the only thing people are asking is, do you hear Yanni or Laurel? You know, and at the risk of disappointing half of the public, all I could hear was Yanni. But then here's the weird thing. This is all true. I woke up in the morning and again, the Twitter feed is full of this debate about Yanni versus Laurel, and I listened again, and this time, in the morning, it was Laurel, Laurel, Laurel. So I don't know what that means about my situational ethics, but I can hear both Yanni and Laurel. And may we spend this much time 
debating crucial issues about America's future as well. Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Can I call you Preet? Yes, that's what, that's my name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and it's easier to say than the last name. So before we get to all this amazing work that you've spent your career doing, I want to talk about what it was like for you to be the youngest of 10 kids. Because that's a lot of kids. <laughs> that's a lot of kids. I mean, I had enough fights with my brother, only two of us. So, so t- yeah. <laughs> tell, well, tell us so what, you know what? that was the like. Well, so the fighting is less because essentially, if, you know, if, if your parents are smart as mine were, you essentially impose martial law because there's no other way to maintain <laughs> order and control. And so I don't recall fighting with my siblings actually at all. And I was But you the were the youngest. babies. No one's I everyone loved youngest. you, right? Well, you know, I mean there's there's love and there's love. You know? <laughs> so uh Do you think being in such a large family helped you deal with people later in life and be more absolutely. sort of open? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think that managing yourself around a lot of people, recognizing that people are very different and people watching. You know, we actually were a, a big people watching family. And so um, we watched people and we learned how to see what you wouldn't see if you're moving too quickly. So yeah, I, I think it has been helpful to me. And I actually like people, which is the other thing. <laughs> I, think and I, I like to be around people. I like a lot of people and I enjoy, you know, just interacting and understanding what, what people are up to. So, so let's, let's talk about, um, you're a lawyer. Yeah. And you went to the law school where I teach, NYU Law School. Mm-hmm. But the recent work that you have been doing at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, talk a little bit about what the overall mission of that place is and yeah. what you think about the work. Well, in some ways, it's not recent. This is my second tour of duty at LDF. You know, when I was that kid in that big family, well, what I wanted to be, you know, since I was fairly young, was a civil rights lawyer. And it happened. It happened for me. I was a young lawyer at LDF in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and then went off to teach and came back to lead the organization in 2013. This is the organization founded by Thurgood Marshall in 1940, an organization of, at that time, what were almost entirely African-American lawyers, which in 1940 was a very provocative enterprise to undertake. Right. And those lawyers, despite having no blueprint and despite not having seen a country that was committed to racial equality and justice set about trying to make that happen here and set about trying to make the words and the promises and the spirit of the Civil War amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments enacted after the Civil War and designed to ensure that African Americans had full citizenship and dignity in our society. They set about trying to make that true in the early part of the 20th century, mid-20th century, you know, when we were steeped in some of the worst excesses of Jim Crow, of, of legal apartheid. And they did it. They did it, at least as a matter of law. Do you have a civil rights or political hero? Oh, my gosh, I have so many. Well, um, can you, you got to pick I one. Three? Can I do I have three? One. Three? I'm going to have to have three. I have to have three. Just because you had nine siblings doesn't mean you can, you <laughs> there can we go, defy there we go. the question. So I'm going to say, I mean, obviously, you know, Thurgood is one. You know, Constance Baker Motley is another extraordinary LDF attorney and responsible essentially for the litigation that challenged successfully segregation at almost every public university in the South. Um, she was doing the same pioneering work as the men, but she was doing it as a woman at, at the time when to see an African-American woman lawyer in a Southern courtroom was unheard of. Right. You know, she litigated cases where judges turned their seat and would not face her, you know, gave her the back. 
And, you know, when she had to go down to America's Georgia into a fetid jail cell to try and get Martin Luther King out of jail, these are things that she had to do that she did, by the way, dressed perfectly and, you know, in heels and, and pearls. But her brilliance and her unflappability and her dignity was extraordinary. Do you think that Constance Baker Motley is underappreciated? You know, I, I yes. know her, obviously. <laughs> she was a judge in the Southern District of New York. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm a lawyer and I know people who clerked for her. But she's not as well known as some of the other people who get cited. Is that a shame? Yeah, that is a shame. And it's part of why I have to mention her because, you know, when I was a young LDF lawyer, I had my oldest daughter when I was pregnant with her. I went to go see Judge Motley, who had long left the legal defense fund, but she was someone who had litigated, you know, with a family, with a child and a husband. And I, you know, sought her counsel and advice. So what advice did she give you? <laughs> Truthfully, she said, get a nanny. Um, <laughs> She's a very pragmatic woman. <laughs> she was she was extremely pragmatic. I admired her greatly. And yes. then just because the Lynching Museum Memorial opened in Montgomery, Alabama, I'm going to say Ida B. Wells, who was a journalist and who documented lynchings in the South at great peril to herself. In fact, she had to leave Memphis, Tennessee because of uh, her work and because three of her friends were lynched in that town. And she uh, also, like Constance Baker Motley, was a pioneer, faced so many challenges as a woman. She challenged segregated trains long before Rosa Parks sat down on the bus, and she owned newspapers. She co-owned two newspapers uh, in the South and then owned a newspaper, black newspaper in Chicago when she fled the South. She was an early pioneer in the NAACP, a very unsung one, by the way. And she was a very staunch and vocal feminist. You know, she went on also to have a family and was insistent on traveling with her children and nursing her children, even as she was on her speaking tours and creating daycares in places where she worked. I mean, much of what we knew about lynching, particularly in the early years, we know because of the meticulous documentation and journalistic dedication of Ida B. Wells. Right. You have fought all of your adult life for civil rights and have taught mm -hmm. law and about civil rights. Were there personal experiences that you had with racism, bigotry, discrimination that animate your work? It's an interesting question. I actually have taken a very particular position on this. When I first was a young lawyer at LDF, I think maybe my second week, the then director counsel, the brilliant, extraordinary, and also unsung civil rights hero, Julius Chambers, sent me to Texas to investigate a potential voting rights claim. People were calling us and they wanted us to come down and look at judicial elections and the method of electing judges there. And I had actually never spent time in the South before. And I was an extremely green young lawyer. And I went down and uh, was scared to death and began to work with this group of African Americans in Harris County, Texas, who wanted to challenge the way judges were elected and worked with them on that case and you know, litigated that case over five years and it went up to the Supreme Court and back down and so forth. That was the beginning. And, and obviously I litigated many more cases in Oklahoma and in Louisiana and in Arkansas, traveling through the Delta. And the experiences that I had convinced me that one of the things that was important was that I not put myself in the center of the story. And so I'm an African-American person and so yes, of course, you know, I can tell you, for example, that the recent experience of what happened to the two young men in the Starbucks resonated powerfully for me and resonates, I think, for almost every African-American because most of us 
have had this experience in the public space of being treated as though we don't belong there, of being treated suspiciously, of being treated as though we were criminals. And it is deeply humiliating. It is an ongoing reminder that we are not regarded as full citizens in many ways, particularly in the public space. And I think many people who are not Black don't understand how the public space is fraught for us because we are always mindful of how we will be treated and that a central part of the civil rights struggle has been about how African-Americans are treated in the public space and the relationship between that and our citizenship. And so, yes, I could tell you countless stories of personal discrimination that I have experienced. But my, my view is that as a civil rights lawyer, my platform is to be used to tell the stories of my clients and not my own. So let's talk about Starbucks that you mentioned. You're not just an observer of that. You're involved in a certain way, which we'll talk about in a second. But just remind folks what happened. So a few weeks ago, there were two African-American men at a Starbucks in Philadelphia. What happened? Well, according to the men, they came into the Starbucks. They were there about two minutes. The supervisor came over to them, and because they hadn't ordered anything, she said, asked them to leave. And when they said they would not leave, and they wouldn't leave because they were preparing to have a meeting. They hadn't ordered anything because they had another colleague who was coming to the Starbucks to meet them there, and they were going to order once he arrived, as many people do at the Starbucks. And she proceeded to call the police to have them removed. And the police arrived and arrested these two completely peaceful young men who were using the Starbucks for the purpose that Starbucks presents itself as a place of community where people can come together. And these two men were arrested and they were held for nine hours uh, by the police. And as they were being arrested, their colleague actually showed up, right? Their colleague, who was white, actually shows up and says, like, what are you doing? Now there's a complete explanation also that should have been apparent to the police officers, but they still arrest the two young men. Now, I will say I'm of two minds about the colleague showing up and vouching for them because I just will tell you as an African-American, the idea that I need a white person to come and vouch for my... It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't shouldn't matter. But it certainly adds to the idea that at that moment, the police had the discretion to decide how they were going to handle that situation. And they handled it in the way that unfortunately too often it is handled when it involves young African-American men whose uh, liberty is seen as not valuable to them, that arresting them is just something that can be done as a matter of course. And do you see that incident at Starbucks as an example of blatant racism or of bias or of something else? Yeah, I think it has multiple levels. I think there's bias in the Starbucks employee who called the police. It's astonishing to me that the reaction to the two men being there it would be to call the police. I mean, I sometimes wonder about the willingness of people and in those kinds of circumstances, whites in particular, to call the police as though the police are a private security force. The police, they represent the state, and the state has given them the power, given them a shield and given them a badge and given them a taser and pepper spray and a gun and the power to take human life with the imprimatur of the state. And so when you know an individual calls the police on these two young men in this way, Absolutely, I think it's bias. But I also think it's bias when the police, who are also imbued along with the badge and the gun and the pepper spray and the taser, with discretion. And they have the discretion to determine how they're going to manage a particular situation, whether they think they should go away for a while and say, listen, they, you know, if your friend's not here in a half hour coming back through and you know, you're going to have to leave, 
whether they decide if they really think a trespass, an illegal trespass happened, whether they're going to issue a summons or some kind of desk appearance ticket. They have many options available to them, of which arrest is only one and the most severe. And I often think about what would have happened if those men who were wrongly being arrested were not as calm as they were. They were calm because they understand that in a moment like that, if they react in a different way, that their life can be in danger. And there's a heartbreak in just seeing that in that video as well. Were you satisfied with how the police department reacted and how Starbucks reacted in the initial aftermath? Yeah, I was very disappointed in the first statement of the police commissioner in which he, you know, simply said his officers did nothing wrong. Um, And it took, you know, five days for the police commissioner to walk that back. I am gratified that the commissioner changed his mind and made a a different public statement days later. But the first public statement I thought was actually quite harmful. There were statements by the district attorney and by the city council president and by the mayor almost immediately that I thought were um, laudatory. And I think that the reaction of Starbucks certainly later that evening was really important. And to have the CEO and to have the leadership of the company make the kinds of statements that they made very early on I think is is really, really important. But do you think they did those things, and maybe it doesn't matter, because they saw that it was going to be a business problem for them, or because they understood as a matter of conscience that their employees had done something wrong and it needed to be rectified? Well, I hope and I suspect it's a mixture of both things. I mean, this is not Starbucks' first attempt to address issues of race. And uh, even their you know unsuccessful attempts a few years ago was an attempt to start a conversation on race. And the CEO did start that conversation within his within his company. That's one of the reasons why I frankly was willing when I was asked to help advise Starbucks on this matter is because I know that the company does have that concern and commitment. But I also certainly hope that people think and that companies think that it's good business to address issues like this forthrightly. Starbucks exists in 8,000 communities around this country. And I don't know of another corporate actor, certainly in my adult lifetime, that is as ubiquitous, you know, in as many locations that has articulated their intention to directly and forthrightly confront racism. Haven't heard it. And so um, that is impressive to me. But now the real work starts. What was the attempt a couple of years ago? Um, You may recall that uh, Howard Schultz, the CEO, started wanted to have a conversation to provoke conversations about uh, race and I think it was called race together and there was you know statements on on the cups uh, coffee on the cups, cups and, yes. yeah exactly exactly my recollection of that was that you know some people poked fun at that a little bit oh absolutely it was unsuccessful I don't yeah. think anyone would would say it was successful but I think even an attempt and a failure is better than not having attempted at all do you believe in boycotts uh, they have their place um, I I don't tell what people when to boycott and when not to boycott I'm a civil rights lawyer so. You know, my job is to do, as for example, what LDF did in, during the Montgomery bus boycott, which was to represent the boycotters. Um, but I think, you know, civil rights activism has many forms. Some of the work is litigation, which is principally what we do. Some of it is legislative advocacy. Some of it is grassroots organizing. Some of it is boycotts. You know, some of it is economic pressure. Um, so these are all tools Boycotting is not my tool, but there are activists for whom that is their tool, and I would never seek to prevent you know, anyone doing the work of trying to push forward justice to um, not use a tool that they think is the effective and appropriate tool for them to use that is nonviolent and that seeks to raise you know, attention to an important issue. 
So can you explain what your involvement now is in the Starbucks issue and how you have been enlisted to try to help people deal with bias at that company? Yeah, so Starbucks asked me and several other civil rights leaders to advise them in how to uh, move forward with first initially a company-wide training that's planned for May 29th when all Starbucks stores will be closed and to help them see their blind spots, to help them think about what they need to correct and what kinds of protocols they need to put in place. We were very clear the training cannot be a one-off, that the one day is actually really a kickoff, that it's critical for the executive team to be trained, um, in fact, even before the staff. We think it's important that there be a anti-bias training that's part of the onboarding of every Starbucks employee because this is a business with significant turnover. So it's a complex matrix that has to be created, and then training only is effective if there is an opportunity for monitoring that training and evaluating the effectiveness of it. Can you talk about what that training looks like? And you know, people who watch the news and get fleeting yeah. bits of information, you hear that there's an incident somewhere, and people say, well, the answer to that is training, whether it's sexual harassment training or bias training or anger management, or whatever the case may be, not to equate mm-hmm. all of those things. But I don't know that people have an understanding of what that. What does that mean? You know, is it people sitting around having a discussion? Do they get a lecture? Do they do simulations? Do they watch? Like, yeah. What does it look like, and what's effective? So first, let me talk about the purpose of training. You know, the purpose of training is to help us see what we don't see, help us to see our biases, and we all have them. Then help us to understand the effect of those biases, and then to give us the tools to manage our biases and prejudices. And that's an affirmative thing that people have to do. And this is what I think is so important. People think that because they're nice people or good people or because they believe in racial equality or because you know, they don't feel that they are prejudiced against anyone, that they are not biased. And that is simply not true because biases, particularly racial bias in this country, is the product not just of personal feelings, but is the product of practices and structures and messages and policies that have been part of our country for hundreds of years and that are still delivered to us every day and that we all take in. So how do you prove to people that truth, that they have bias? Do you administer And so you show them. And so, yeah, and so you, you know, there are a lot of ways to do it, right? So there are electronic ways to do it. People can take online tests that show them bias. There are scenarios that you can walk people through in which bias is revealed, There are story circles in which people can talk candidly about situations and circumstances of bias that may not have been recognized by others. There are lots of ways that you expose it. Then when you expose it, the question is, what do you do with it? How do you recognize it yourself and how do you manage it? Well, we've learned some things. You said, you know, what works? Um, One of the things that's most important is having a set of policies and practices that employees adhere to, because at the end of the day, a work culture is the product of the policies of that work culture. And if the policies of that work culture ignore the reality of these biases I just talked about, then they go unchecked and they're almost like air. People don't recognize that they exist. And the people who then complain about bias are seen as disturbing the environment or disturbing the atmosphere rather than responding to the unspoken that is in the culture. Would it be you know, a part of the training or, or practice or policy to make sure employees at Starbucks ask themselves the question, if you're going to call the cops on people who haven't yet bought something, 
would you have done that if there were two white patrons as opposed to two African-American patrons? And stop for a moment and ask yourself that question. If the, if the answer is no, then don't do it? Or is that a silly way of looking at it? It's not silly. It's just that I don't think that many people are prepared to honestly answer mm-hmm. that question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, So you know, going back to the policies, the question is, what is the policy about calling the police? Because the place where bias flourishes, you know, we, we say discretion is the fertile soil of bias, right. right? Every place that you have discretion, every place you as an individual can decide whether to call the police or not, is a place where bias can seep in. Now, we're not trying to turn everybody into robots. Of course, discretion exists in any job. But to the extent you can have policies that direct people about what to do in certain circumstances, you are lessening the opportunity for individual biases to drive decision making. But it comes with the recognition that, you know, being a supervisor or a manager, right, having the power to call the police, to close the shop, to decide not to serve someone, you know, all the things that people who are in a supervisory role get to do comes with the responsibility to recognize this reality of bias, particularly in the public space and in customer service in this country. You have to understand the history of it. You have to understand that it exists. You have to understand that it exists in you. And you have to be prepared to be trained to manage it and then to recognize that as part of the skill set that you have to have as a supervisor. So we've been talking about bias in systems and in practices in places like Starbucks. But there's this new phenomenon that some people are greeting excitedly, and some people are greeting with trepidation because they don't know where it will lead. And that's something called AI, artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. which opens up a whole host of new problems and issues with respect to bias and discrimination. And you have focused on this a little bit. Tell, Tell folks what your concern is, separate and apart from lots of other concerns that people have raised about AI. What's your concern? Well, the concern is that it begins with what we think AI is. We treat AI as though, artificial intelligence, as though it is not at all touched or tainted by uh, human flaw, right? It is regarded as quintessentially neutral. And scientific. As, imp- as scientific, right. impartial, and therefore untouched by things like the kind of you know, conversation we've just been having, but untouched by things like bias, untouched by history, right? Except that the people who program and create and code and manage artificial intelligence are human beings who themselves are touched by all of those things. And our presumption that we are not embedding into AI the very prejudices that come from human beings and then dipping them in the imprimatur of neutrality and impartiality that comes with AI is the danger spot for me. And so we just make presumptions that once it's in the technology, it's now been purged of issues like bias. And yet, if you look at some of the recent articles, for example, about the way in which face recognition technology has difficulty recognizing the difference between African-American or Asian-American faces, right? And that's a product of lack of diversity in the people who are designing that software? That's right. That's right. That's right. What is the the, uh, phrase, garbage in, garbage out? You know, we we should just recognize that the people who are creating these systems are people. (laughs) And and the systems will reflect what people created. And these are profound ethical issues. And so that's why 
40 civil rights organizations sent a letter to the ethics board of Axon, which creates a whole tranche of products that they sell to law enforcement that law enforcement then uses to do surveillance and investigation and arrest. And our argument has been that there has to be within the AI community an ethical engagement with the issues that you and I have just described. And it's important, Preet, because this is a societal issue that we're grappling with. And you don't get to offload your responsibility for addressing issues of race and bias simply by you know, coding it and then passing it along and selling the product. Look, we've been very engaged at LDF around issues of police violence and police misconduct. And that is a real and very present problem. But it also is true that the introduction of these products may be allowing manufacturers to offload their own biases onto law enforcement. Right. And it becomes dangerous because it's hard to then unpack. Yeah. And who's responsible? Look, I mean, we have difficulty getting people to understand implicit bias. We don't even yet have legal standards for how in a court of law we present issues of implicit bias and the recognition of implicit bias. But that at least suggests that it's implicit bias that lives within human beings. How would we then unpack the bias that lives within a program, right? It's almost creating a framework for bias in which no one is responsible. So who is responsible ultimately then for making sure that this is done right? Is it the companies or government? It begins at the beginning, and it's a shared responsibility. Government, because the government has the power to regulate and should regulate, and to the extent any of these companies are receiving government benefits, which many of them are, they should be bound by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says that the federal government should not provide funds to any program that engages in discrimination. Then there's the companies themselves that can, as a matter of civic responsibility and perhaps good business, as you, we were discussing earlier when we talked about Starbucks, decide to take some of this on. But we also think as a matter of ethics, you and I are in a profession that is governed by ethics. And some of those ethics tell us what we can and what we can't do. I'm sure you, like me, Preet, you have reactions to things that happen in our country. You, you have reactions yeah, I, to things that are said. I do, indeed. Yes, said, but that are said by our leaders. You have reactions to decisions that are issued by judges. I do, too. But you and I know that we can't say anything we want. We can say some things, and we do say some things. But we also have ethical rules that bind us in terms of what we can say and how we can say it. And that's a good thing right. because we're upholding a professional standard. And what we're suggesting is that there are also ethics that have to govern the manufacture, creation, and dissemination of artificial intelligence. And they have to also be bound by a code, just as judges are bound by a code, as lawyers are bound by a code. They should be bound by codes that confront these issues. These are issues that are endemic to this country. We fought a civil war over these issues. We endured the blood, sweat, and tears that were shed in a civil rights movement over these issues. And they resulted in civil rights statutes like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I think that companies have to understand that they are responsible for the network that undergirds us being true to the spirit of those uh, statutes. And we should not presume that simply because you operate in the tech space that you're somehow divorced from the obligation to engage this critical question. Let's talk about democracy for a minute. <laughs> okay. No, for, you know, a minute or so. How unfair is voting in America? 
embarrassingly unfair in that the effort that it takes to vote, the navigation that it takes to vote, the ways in which people who are poor, who are minority, are burdened, and the way in which states have been engaged in the practice of deliberately seeking to suppress the votes of racial minorities. I mean, when you look at the last five years and you look at these cases coming from these federal circuit courts and coming from federal trial courts in Texas and North Carolina, and you have federal judges, some of them not from conservative courts, right, recognizing that voter ID laws, uh, that Texas's original voter ID law, SB 14, that we challenged, you know, violates the Voting Rights Act and a trial court finding that it was intentionally created to discriminate against African-American and Latino voters, or the Fourth Circuit finding that North Carolina's omnibus voting bill, you know, ending souls to the polls and ending, you know, 16 and 17 year olds pre-registering and so forth, was enacted and created and written with surgical precision to suppress African-American voting strength. That is a shame and a stain on our democracy. And those laws, the passage of those laws, I want to be clear, predated the election of President Trump. Right. What about the disenfranchisement of convicted felons? Well, this is one of, you know, one of the most important voting issues in this country, I think, and, and citizenship issues in this country, that people who have committed crimes or been convicted of committing crimes have served their time and come out of jail and prepare to re-enter society. And we have the expectation that they are going to behave and comport themselves as good citizens. We expect them to work. We expect them to uh, have a place to live. Pay taxes. We expect them to pay taxes. We expect them to obey the laws. And yet in states all over this country, we strip them forever of the right to vote. The Supreme Court in the 1880s in Yickwo versus Hopkins, you know, said that the right to vote is preservative. It's fundamental and preservative of all rights. So if the right to vote, if that ability to cast that ballot lies at the heart of citizenship, we have essentially branded those who have served their time as literally second class citizens for life. The racial consequences of this are extraordinary and, you know, result in things like 13% of the black voting population in Alabama being disenfranchised. So it's a huge issue. It's an embarrassment. And it is, yet again, you know, particularly when understood in the context of race, yet another way in which, you know, African Americans continue to be burdened by laws that keep them from full participation in the political process. I agree with you. I spent, as you know, much of my adult life and career as a prosecutor, and the consequence of that kind of work is that people end up going to prison for long periods of time. But I don't understand why that means it's a life sentence that prohibits you from voting. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me for all the reasons you describe. And we'll have more to say about that, I think, on the show and elsewhere. Do you care to weigh in at all? And I think you have on Kanye West's embrace of <laughs> Donald Trump. Well, I think we've even gone beyond that at this point. Um, I honestly think that artists are playing a really powerful role in this country at this moment that I think is, is largely really positive. And I really have been excited to see so many artists stepping up and being unafraid to use their voices as citizens, whether it's in Time's Up or whether it's around issues of bail reform or uh, racial inequality. I think it's been extraordinary to see and really important. 
because I think it's important to recognize that being an artist, even having an artistic level that is regarded by some as genius, does not remove you from the obligation to be a knowledgeable, educated citizen and does not give you license, frankly, to elevate your personal journey above the truth and the truth of the flaws in our democracy, historical yeah. flaws and contemporary flaws. So when I see what Kanye's doing, I, I want to salute, you know, first of all, artists like John Legend who have been taking the time to try and educate him. Nothing that he's saying is new. These are all arguments that have been made before. And that's part of what's, I think, somewhat embarrassing about it. You know, he described these as new ideas. These are not new ideas. But, you know, when, once you get to the point of saying things like, you know, slavery was a choice, right. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty checked out because, <laughs> you know, I, got, I have work to do and right. I can't. But what about when he says something like, uh, you know, African-Americans don't have to be Democrats? But nobody said African-Americans do have to be right. Democrats. I run a nonpartisan organization. And when we, when we litigate and fight for the voting rights of African-Americans, we don't fight for the party that they join or the person that they vote for. In fact, I'm old enough, I won't reveal my age too much, but you know, when I was a young voting rights lawyer, we were still suing Democratic governors who were in the yeah, South. Of course. So we recognize that these things can change. And so no, they don't have to be. But I do think that we would be ridiculous to pretend that one party has not allied itself with issues like voter suppression, that the current Attorney General, Attorney General Sessions has not actually switched positions in civil rights cases. This is the person who is, you know, the chief enforcer of the nation's civil rights laws, and he has abandoned that. And so I don't have any compunction about being honest about that. We sued the Trump administration for the Election Integrity Commission on race discrimination right. grounds. You know, I think one of the most shameful things that the president has done was the pardon of uh, former Sheriff Joe Arpaio, an unrepentant racist. You know, these are things that are just facts. You don't have to be partisan right. to say that those were actions that were taken that are contrary to the full citizenship and strength of African-Americans. And that's what I fight for. And whichever party is engaged in that, we're going to be fighting against the activities that they're engaged in. But that's never been a question of whether all African-Americans have to be Democrats. Right. African-Americans should be aligning themselves with the party that they feel has their greatest interests at heart and that promotes the kinds of policies economic, educational, political, and so forth policies that support the strength of African-American families and communities. Right. Those, and, I, and I think African-American voters do make that calculation. So here's my last question to you. If you could just briefly tell people who are listening who are young and might care about civil rights and about increasing tolerance and diversity in the country, what's your advice to them about how they can make a difference and make things better? I think the first thing is that when I was a young kid, Preet, I saw these old films about the civil rights movement, and it was so exciting to me. It's what made me want to become a civil rights lawyer. These people all seemed, however, larger than life. And I think one of the things we have to debunk is the idea that you are have to be a larger-than-life figure to engage in the work of civil rights, that in fact, most of the most important breakthroughs in civil rights work were advanced by ordinary people. And so everyone has a role to play. And I would encourage young people to figure out what you can do where you are and to imagine yourself as taking on responsibility for creating a space around you, whether it's a space in your work, in your family, in your community, in your church, in your temple, that that space, what people say, the policies that you pursue, the issues that you prioritize will be ones that advance the idea of equality and justice and openness 
And I think that when people take responsibility for that themselves in their work and in their in their civic lives, you begin to develop the civil rights muscle, right? Then you can decide whether this is something you want to pursue as your life's work. But it really begins with people deciding that it's going to be part of themselves. And then I would just, since you, you know, raised the, the issue of Mr. West, educating yourself, educate yourself about the challenges that LGBTQ communities and individuals have faced and continue to face in this country. Educate yourself about the kinds of challenges that people who speak English as a second language in school face. Educate yourself about race and class. And that's important because you have to operate from a base of knowledge. We all have feelings and feelings are important. But feelings can often lead us astray, and they're not incredibly good platforms upon which to build all policy. Policy has to have heart, but it also has to be grounded in what is true, especially at this moment when truth itself is under attack. Young people have to be aggressive and disciplined enough to seek out truth. That's great advice. Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Preet. I really enjoyed it. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something in the news that has struck me. And so this podcast episode drops on May 17th, 2018, which happens to be the exact one-year anniversary of the appointment of the special counsel, Robert Mueller, by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. And that has caused quite a year for everyone, both on the podcast and in the news and in concerns about what's happening with the presidency and the effect of the Russians on our election in the past and what may be coming up in the future. And it's just useful to maybe take a step back and think about that fateful decision. And there are some people who cry witch hunt, and that happens in lots and lots of high-profile investigations. Powerful people like to denigrate prosecutors. So that's not that different here, except that the stakes are very, very high, maybe the highest they've ever been. But the record kind of speaks for itself. There have been any number of indictments. There are trials pending against Paul Manafort, a number of people have pled guilty. An offshoot of the case has been assigned to my former office in the Southern District of New York. So there's a lot happening. It's not smoke and mirrors. I don't know how far it will go. And I want to repeat something that I said before that doesn't make everyone happy. And that is, given Bob Mueller's reputation as someone who has been a public servant for most of his adult life, we should respect whatever conclusion he comes to. And if that is that there was no crime of a particular nature on the part of the president, we should accept that. And if he, on the other hand, decides that there is evidence such that there's a referral to the House of Representatives for potential impeachment, I would hope everyone would accept that too. My fear is that depending on what your political preference is, you're going to form your conclusion about Bob Mueller's results based on that. In any event, people ask me all the time what I think of Bob Mueller. And I respond in the way you've heard me respond on the podcast from time to time. But a few weeks ago, Time Magazine put Bob Mueller on its list of 100 most influential people in the world, probably belongs there. And they asked me to do a write-up of him. And it was hard to do because there's a lot to say about Bob Mueller. And I got about 209 words. And I thought to close out the show, I would just read to you my opinion. This is what I said. Robert S. Mueller III doesn't seek deferments. After a classmate died in Vietnam, this well-to-do Princeton athlete traded his lacrosse stick for a military rifle, and volunteered for war. He returned with a bronze star, a purple heart, and a gunshot wound. He later brought the same gritty courage to battling crime at the Department of Justice. 
Eventually, he retired to private practice, but moved by violence sweeping Washington, D.C., Mueller quit his law firm to work in the trenches as a homicide prosecutor. When his 10-year term as FBI director expired, a notoriously gridlocked Congress changed the law just for him. And once again, Mueller forfeited comfort for continued service. Mueller is straight-laced and tight-lipped, a legal and sartorial traditionalist. Once while jointly announcing charges in an international assassination plot, he chided me for wearing a blue shirt. Mueller's buttoned-down discretion has made him an enigmatic vessel into which polarized sides pour their hopes and fears. To millions, the special counsel is either a political savior or a berserk villain. He is neither. He is a by-the-book lawman who, with nothing to prove and a lifetime of service behind him, agreed to lead the most fraught, least understood, highest-stakes investigation of our time. For that... We owe him incalculable thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Sherilyn Eiffel. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned.